familiar and friendly faces. Thank you, music team. Right, we, um, as you recall, we are going through the book of Acts. We've been going through the book of Acts for the past few months, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We haven't skipped any verse so far. And um, today we're going to start with Acts chapter 25. just want to have a quick recap of, the um, of chapter 23 and 24 before we start. As you remember, Paul went to Jerusalem. And at the temple, there was a big uproar, and the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Paul. In fact, it was such an uproar that it said the whole city was in uproar. And so the Roman soldiers were forced to intervene, and they arrested Paul. Um, and it was the tribune Claudius Lysus that uh, arrested Paul just before he, he, the crowd would actually kill him. And then an assassination attempt on Paul's life um, was exposed. So Claudius Lysus decided to send Paul to Caesarea. And um, it was quite interesting. He transferred him in the middle of the night with 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. So talk about protective custody, right? Once he was in Caesarea, he stood trial before the Roman governor. It was um, Felix, the Roman governor of Judea. Now, the Jews also sent um, some people to accuse Paul, right? And you remember there was uh, this well-spoken lawyer, um, Tertullius, in chapter 24. Um, and they had all these accusations against Paul. But um, it was just accusations. There were no proof. And Paul successfully defended himself against these guys. Um, but, um, and at least then, we saw then last week, at least at another occasion, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, heard Paul speak about the gospel. And then we learned that, you know, Felix, he had another desire. He, he wanted to receive a bribe out of Paul. So even though Paul was innocent after the trial, he kept Paul in jail. And he wanted to get some money out of Paul. And um, that didn't happen. And then we saw the end of chapter 4 when Felix was succeeded as governor, having already detained Paul for two years, he decided to actually leave him in prison as a favor to the Jews. And that's how we get to today's passage. So please stand with me as we read Acts chapter 25. Verses 1 to 12. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they were preparing to ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. 
They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of church. Thank you for the gift of your word. I pray that today we will, we will be hearers of your word and we will think about your word and we will be doers of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You must be asking yourself, here we go again. Paul is on trial again, and the Jews has got a new plot to kill him. Now, Acts chapter 23, all the way to 27, reads like an exciting adventure novel. It chronicles Paul's arrest at the Temple of Jerusalem, his imprisonment, and the events that eventually lead him to Rome. And Rome at that time was the center of the known world. And why is that? It's because the author of Acts is Luke. Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote Acts. And Luke wanted to write a historic, accurate account. If you remember, Luke starts the Gospel of Luke with these words. It's in Luke chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In other words, Luke wrote facts. He said he investigated and he wrote an orderly account. Now, based on Luke's accurate description of cities and towns, names of officials, even the titles of these officials, um, world-famous archaeologists, William Mitchell Ramsey wrote this about Luke. He said, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he should be placed along the very greatest of historians. Okay, that's high praise indeed. So, we have this account in the Bible because Luke was not only a physician, but he was a first-rate historian. And he wanted to give an orderly account of things as they happened. But just think about it. Where would we be without the book of Acts? We'd have the four Gospels, and then we'd jump straight into the deep theology of Romans. And then we would have all these books, all these letters to the churches in Asia, to, um, to Gentile churches, and we'd have no idea, we'd have no context what happened between the Gospels and all these letters. Okay, so in today's passage... Luke 50, uh, 25 verse 1, 
starts with, three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now, Caesarea was a seaside city, and it served as the administrative headquarters of the governor of Judea. Did you know it was King Herod the Great that transferred a little seaside village into the great city of Caesarea? He built amazing public buildings, public infrastructure, monuments, and then he renamed the seaside village. He named it, renamed it to Caesarea um, after, after Augustus Caesar. And um, this, this city, Caesarea, was 86 kilometers away from Jerusalem. And as you know, Jerusalem is where the temple was. And that was the center of the Jewish faith. It was actually the center of the Jewish identity. So Felix was removed and replaced by Festus. And Festus wastes no time in getting to work. As soon as he moves into office, he takes this 86-kilometer road trip to Caesarea, to, to Jerusalem, to meet the people that he is now in charge of. Keeping the peace in Jerusalem would have been one of the main objectives of his reign, and he wastes no time in getting to it. Now, Felix, the previous governor, had left a bad taste in the mouth of the Jews. We were introduced to Felix in the last chapter, chapter 24. Now, it's interesting. We learn from Cornelius Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, and also from Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, that Felix was actually the first free slave to ever become, to ever become a governor in, um, in the Roman um, um, pantheon. So he was the Roman governor of Judea for eight years. Now Felix married three times. And we were introduced to his second wife, Drusilla, who was actually the daughter of King Agrippa I. Um, and so she is the sister of King Agrippa II, who we will meet in the next chapter. Now, their marriage was something of a scandal because the 16-year-old Drusilla divorced the first husband, who was a king, King Aziz of Hamath, to marry Felix. Yes, that's right, Lisa. She was 16 years old when she got divorced. <laughs> Lisa just had a birthday this week. <laughs> Sweet 16. So, so Felix was cruel and corrupt. And his rule in Judea actually led to a great increase in the crime in Judea. So much so that Jonathan, the high priest, threatened to report Felix to Caesar. And, and guess what uh, Felix's response was? He had Jonathan, the high priest, assassinated. Right, so here we have Festus. Three days later, he's in Jerusalem. He wants to keep the peace. Verse 2 where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. Okay, so Festus wanted to keep the peace. Going to Jerusalem was one of his first tasks, and he meets the Jewish leaders. And we remember that Paul has now been in prison for two years already. But the chief priests and the Jewish leaders have not forgotten about him. And this is one of the first items they bring to the table. We want to know about Paul. We want him, you to hand him over to us. 
it really shows us the anger that um, these guys had toward Paul and the gospel. Right, then we see in verse 3 to 5, they requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held in Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. We can see God's providence in protecting Paul. Festus was not aware of the plot to have Paul killed, but he did not consent to bring Paul back to Jerusalem. And we ask ourselves, why not? He was there on a to make peace with him. You know, it would have been an easy thing for, for him to ascend. But um, we actually get the answer. And the answer is in Acts 25, verse 16. That's a verse we're going to look at next week. But Festus meets with King Agrippa and he tells him this. I answered them that it's not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has had the opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So the answer is that Festus was a Roman, and he loved the Roman way. He was a patriot. He cared about Roman law. He cared about Roman citizens. He cared about the Roman way. He didn't know Paul. The Bible doesn't say that he knew anything about Judaism or Christianity, but he did know about Rome. And this is how he operated. And so, he suggested that the Jews rather come with him and that they hold a proper trial, the proper Roman way in Caesarea. Then in verse 6 and 7, After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. So sitting on the judgment seat, Festus commanded Paul to be brought before him for a trial. Once again, Paul was on a trial before a Gentile ruler, accused by the Jewish leaders. Now, just remember, as before, Paul's life is now actually in danger. Should he be found guilty, that would be the end of Paul. But we see the Jews did not have any more evidence than two years ago. All they had were accusations. Paul conspires against Rome. Paul breaks the Jewish law. Paul desecrated the temple. And through all these charges, the Bible says they could not prove any of them. And then just like before, Paul adequately defends himself. In verse 8, I've committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Then in verse 9, we see that Festus was also political, right? He made some calculations, and we see in verse 9, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Okay, so Festus was dealing with what seemed to be a mix of religious and political charges. Some accusations, like the political ones, were properly in the domain of the governor. 
but some was for the chief priests or the chief leaders um, or the Sanhedrin, right? The Sanhedrin was the highest court of justice and the supreme council in ancient Jerusalem of the Jews. So, you know, some of these charges were more in the Sanhedrin's domain. Festus was probably not aware, but it was unlikely that a formal session of the Sanhedrin could actually have been held with him presiding over it. So even if he did go to Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin would have insisted on two court cases, a religious one and a political one. Now, this is not the first time we've seen it. Um, if you remember the trial of Jesus, um, it says in uh, Luke 22, verse 66, and then in 23, verse 1, when Jesus was arrested, he was standing on trial before the Sanhedrin, and they found him guilty. And after they found him guilty, they all went with him and they took him to Pilate, who was then um, the governor of Judea at that stage. So, you know, Jesus was on two trials. They found him guilty and then they took him to, to the Roman governor. And um, that's, that was probably what they wanted to do with Paul as well. So Festus could not see that the Jews... Oh, Festus could see that the Jews had no case, only accusations. But he also knew that if he acquitted Paul it could lead to unrest, right? And that was one of the first things he came to do was not to shake the boat, but to keep things calm with the Jews. With the Jews. So the solution that he suggested, take Paul back to Jerusalem, just like the Jews wanted, but to let Paul stand trial before him, assuring a fair trial. So he was trying to find an easy solution. He was trying to appease everyone. Notice that Festus couldn't simply just pull, uh, turn Paul over to the Jews because he was dealing with a Roman citizen who had no official charges proven against him. Now, the duty of a Roman ruler, a governor, one of his duties was also to protect Roman citizens against local injustices. So, Paul, who is a Roman citizen, prevented Festus from actually just commanding him for the trial to be moved to Jerusalem. That's why he asked Paul about it. The only problem is that Paul knew what Festus probably didn't know, and that is was that um, you know, trial in Jerusalem would not end well for him. He knew that once he was in Jerusalem, the Jewish authorities would put immense pressure on Festus to turn him over to them for the charge of profaning the temple, the religious charge. Okay, then we see in verse 10 to 12, Paul appeals to Caesar. It says, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But none of those things is true of which these men accuse me. No one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus conferred with his counsel and he answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you will go. Okay, so at this point, rather than agreeing to have his case heard in Jerusalem, Paul appealed to his right as a Roman citizen to have his case heard before Caesar. And at that stage, Caesar was Caesar Nero. 
you should know the name. Um, he later became very, very notorious for being anti-Christian, right? But um, did you know that the first five years of Nero's reign, under the influence of good men around him, Nero was actually regarded as a wise and just ruler. So Paul had no reason to, at this time to believe that Nero would eventually be so anti-Christian. Now note that the scripture doesn't actually give us the specific motivation why Paul said he appeals to Caesar. But we've got some clues. Let's look at them. Number one, first Paul had little reason to believe that he would be released after a trial in Jerusalem. He had already spent two years in prison because of Felix, had not dealt with him fairly. And how, how could he trust Festus, that Festus would, do, um, would actually deal with him fairly? Number two, he was probably aware of the Jewish plot, right? There was now a new Jewish plot to get rid of him. And Luke was aware of it because Luke recorded it in the Gospels. And Luke was a friend, uh, Luke recorded it in the book of Acts. And um, Luke was a friend of Paul. So maybe Paul was aware of this new plot against him as well. But most importantly, we actually saw this in Acts 23, verse 11. When Paul was arrested by Lysias in Jerusalem, that night, the Lord appeared to Paul in a dream, assuring Paul that he would live to proclaim the gospel in Rome. So that's God's providence. God's providence in Paul's life, in Paul's current situation. Have you ever thought about it? What, what, is, what does it mean when we talk about God's providence? Well, providence means that God is in control of all the details of the physical universe and even the details of a person's life. R.C. Sproul said it nicely. He said, you know, God is the creator of the universe and Every atom, every molecule is under the sovereign authority of its creator, of God. If there is even one atom, even one molecule that is not under the authority of God, then God's not God. God is the supreme authority and creator over the known universe. Let's remind ourselves, Luke 22, or Luke 12, verse 6 and 7 when it comes to the specifics of how God um, is involved in his universe. So Luke 12, verse 6 and 7, Jesus said, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Instead, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God in charge of this big universe also intimately knows everything about us. And let's look at Isaiah 46, verse 11. It says, From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far-off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Simply put, the providence of God is God's rule and intervention in the universe. God directs things by his unseen hand. So, Paul. God in his providence chose Paul. 
a Jew born in Tarsus was raised and educated in Jerusalem. He was educated, remember, under Gamaliel, a highly respected rabbi and a Jewish scholar. And Luke mentioned, uh, um, uh, Paul mentioned that in Acts 23 verse 3. He said, I was under, um, taught under Gamaliel into the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Okay. Paul was a brilliant student under a brilliant rabbi, and he was brought up under the strict manner of the law of our fathers. He knew the Old Testament law inside and out. But Paul was also fluent in the Greek language and in Greek culture, and he learned Greek literature. And this enabled him to relate to the Greeks on their level. Remember, the Greeks are the Gentiles. Remember how we quoted their poets, the Greek poets, when he proclaimed the gospel in Athens? And then, of course, he was a Roman citizen, which, was entitled, which entitled him to legal protections that was unavailable to non-citizens. So even his background was carefully orchestrated by God so that he would be the perfect candidate for this job. God, in his providence, protected Paul and eventually took him to Rome. Acts 23:11, right after his arrest, says, The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That's God's purpose for Paul, to testify in Rome. And God's purpose will stand. It will happen. God in his providence used the failed assassination attempt. It was a good plan that the Jews had. At that stage, he was in the barracks in Jerusalem. But God just used that assassination attempt to just move him one step closer to Rome. It was in God's sovereign providence that Paul was a prisoner, or should we say protective custody. Remember, he wasn't in a stinky jail. We see in Acts 23, 25, that Felix, the, free, the previous uh, governor, ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. And then last week in 24-23, he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom, to permit his friends to take care of his needs. So we see that Paul even had some liberty while he was um, in custody. Right, God in his providence... God in his providence provided Paul the opportunity to testify about the gospel to Felix on more than one occasion, as we saw in um, Acts 24. Felix actually sent for Paul often and conversed with him. But we know Felix was a bad actor as well, right? He was waiting for that bribe, and we don't know what would have happened if he eventually got tired of Paul, um, or if the Jews decided to offer him a bribe. So it was in God's providence that Felix was replaced by Festus, who was faithful to his obligations of his office, and he was prompt in his duty, and he loved the Roman law, and he granted Paul his rightful wish to appeal to Caesar. In today's passage in verse 4, Festus unintentionally protected Paul from another assassination attempt by insisting that any hearing should take place in his headquarters in Caesarea. So, if you think about it, Paul testified to two Roman governors, and next week he will even present the gospel to King Agrippa II, the great-grandson of King Herod. 
Let's go to Acts 9, verse 15. Now remember what Jesus said at Paul's conversion when Paul was still called Saul. Acts 9, 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And what did Paul have to say about all this after he was eventually in jail? We can see in Philippians 1, verse 12 and 4, when he was in prison in Rome, he said, I want you to know that what has happened to me, in other words, his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. To you that the whole imperial God has heard and everybody knows why Paul is in prison. God's purposes stand. The gospel was advancing. Jesus' name was becoming known throughout the known world at that time. We see God's sovereign providence playing out right before us. And what's the application for us? What good is it for us to know and to have assurance that God's providence is what directs all things. His invisible hand directs the whole universe. Well, did you know the Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism? Question 28 actually asked that question. It says, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? And the answer is, so that we can be patient in adversity that we can be thankful in prosperity. And as for the future, we can have confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will be able to separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will, they, so, they cannot even move. And what's the end purposes? God is committed to making his name famous. Habakkuk 2 verse 14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in Isaiah 45 23, God says, Before me, every knee will bow. And in Revelations, every knee will bow and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So here we are today, and we already know the end. We already know the, how this story ends. It ends with every new bowing. It ends with the whole earth being filled with God's glory. And we can have confidence in God's providence that His purposes will stand. That's where the whole world is heading. So we can give ourselves to it because we know that God's purposes will not fail. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word so that we know who you are. We know the God that we worship. God, even a, a section like this that is just full of history, it reveals your purposes. It reveals your providence. 
It teaches us that we can rest in your providence. It teaches us that you have purpose and that your purpose will stand. We praise you, Lord. We love you. We ask that you will please um, help us to remember your word and to put our trust in you. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen.